Time for swordplay. Alex Reverend Raphael Warnock, Georgia's first black U.S. senator, wrote an Easter tweet in which he claimed Easter transcends the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that people can save themselves by doing good. Yeah, Nick, Warnock later followed up and said this new salvation system of doing good should have a central figure, you know, to guide the devotees, preferably someone who's, oh, I don't know, both a politician and a reverend. And and this central figure should definitely be celebrated yearly each spring to mark the remembrance of his career. So you think Warnock has anyone in mind, Nick? Hmm. I don't know. Well, happy Warnock Day. I mean, Easter. Oh, there it is. <laughs> this is Swordplay, offering double-edged perspective on Scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Malachi chapter 3. That's right, Malachi chapter 3. We are halfway done with Malachi now, so we'll do chapter 3 today, chapter 4 next week, which is only a few verses, so it won't take long to wrap up. But let's jump right into the text, Nick. We have in verse 1 the mention of uh, a messenger who will clear the way before me. Nick, do we have any idea who is my messenger? Who will Uh, that be? Verse 1. I believe we do. The Synoptic Gospels, so uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all quote this verse and apply it specifically to John the Baptist over in Mark chapter 1, verse 3, Matthew chapter 11, and verse 10, Luke chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. And there also appears to be an allusion to it in Luke 1 and verse 76. So, We have Holy Spirit-inspired utterance, including from Jesus, that the messenger who prepared the way for the Lord was John the Baptist. So that's what I found. That's right. What did you find, Alex? (laughs) Uh, Well, agreed. I mean, the New Testament update affirms John the Baptist as the messenger. Um, That's pretty clear. In chapter 2 of Malachi, I proposed a foreshadowing of John the Baptist in the passage concerning the ideal priest. And of course, next week in chapter 4, we'll see even more John the Baptist prophecies. Now, I do think it's important to uh, not miss the subtlety in this passage. If you remember, Malachi's name means my messenger. So it would have been tempting to see this as perhaps a reference to the author of the letter, And also, who knows, maybe the original audience would have seen the messenger as the priest. Because in chapter 2, verse 7, it says that the priest is my messenger. That's what Yahweh says. However, there are qualifiers that follow the rest of this chapter and the next chapter, leading one eventually to realize that mm, there must be some sort of different figure or messenger coming. Though, John the Baptist, he does fit the profile of a priest. Here's an interesting note. This prophecy of John the Baptist comes on the heels of Yahweh condemning men for tossing away their wives just to marry another woman. You see that at the end of chapter 2. Now call it irony or coincidence, but (laughs) it just so happens that the reason John the Baptist was murdered 
was because he condemned Herod Antipas for tossing away his wife in order to marry another. Specifically, Herodias, who was previously married to his brother, Philip. So there's a little bit of backdrop there, more connections to John the Baptist. Also in verse 1, though, it says, Then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly appear in his temple. Nick, verse 1, when did the Lord come and suddenly appear to his temple or in his temple? Yeah, assuming that what is predicted here in verse 1 is the coming of Christ, then interpretive options abound concerning the timing of the Lord's sudden coming to his temple. Uh, One could be after his birth, when his parents presented him at the temple, he's seen by Simeon and Anna. You can read about that in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 and following. Or how about when Jesus was 12 years old, his parents, uh, they left, realized he wasn't with them. They came back and they found him sitting in the temple uh, to the amazement of the teachers uh, there. And you can read about that in Luke chapter 2, also uh, verses 41 and following. Or about the first time he cleansed the temple. John records this in John chapter 2, verses 13 and following, where he makes a cord of whips, which probably would have taken about three hours to make. And then he starts driving people out of the temple. Or how about when he cleanses the temple at the end of his ministry? Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and following uh, record when he does that. Uh, and the suddenly part of this, he, uh, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Suddenly may refer to the timing being shortly after John the Baptist had prepared the way of the Lord by his teaching ministry out in the desert, by the baptism that he brought with him. So that may be the idea there behind suddenly. So that's what I found. Uh, What say you, Alex, as to when the Lord came suddenly to his temple? Yeah, I'm going to throw one more possibility into the mix here. This may be an allusion to the incarnation. Jesus refers to his own body as the temple when he says that if they destroy it, he will raise it up in three days. That's John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. So the suddenly then, if this is Jesus' own body that we're talking about, it would be as the archangel Gabriel explained to Mary that at the moment when the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the Most High overshadow her. This makes it sound sudden, immediate, and that would be the moment that the Lord began to inhabit a human body in Mary's womb. Now, a second connection to this being a reference to the incarnation is when Malachi says, the Lord whom you seek. When Mary visits Elizabeth, she's still pregnant with the future John the Baptist, Elizabeth spoke by the Holy Spirit and called Mary the mother of my Lord, probably affirming to Mary in her own mind that, yeah, that recent encounter with Gabriel, that was real, and she indeed was now pregnant with the Lord, whom everyone was seeking through the anticipated arrival of Messiah. So incarnation is what I'm going with here. Now also in verse 1, Nick, there are... Uh, two messengers, one messenger, what's going on? Who's the messenger of the covenant? Is he different than my messenger previously mentioned? Yeah, some some identify the messenger of the covenant with the messenger at the beginning of the verse, and they 
basically, the, the understanding is that the, the content of the second half of the verse is repeating the content of the first half. That view, though, I believe neglects the parallel that is intended, uh, it seems to be intended at least, between the Lord whom you seek, that will suddenly come to his nipple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom I delight. So whom you seek and whom you delight. Uh, the people, what were they seeking? Well, verse 17, they were seeking for the God of justice. They were asking, where is the God of justice? It's who they're seeking. And so Yahweh says, Adonai is coming. And that's uh, Lord there, not in all caps, uh, here in 3 verse 1, the first appearance of it. Although at the end, it, it is all caps, so that is Yahweh speaking. But he's talking about Adonai, who will come. There will be a messenger who prepares the way, my messenger, there at the beginning of 3.1. And then the messenger, or it could be translated as the angel of the covenant, which may be a different way of saying angel of Yahweh. Mm-hmm. He will appear suddenly in the temple as desired by the people. But the people seeking and their desiring, uh, which is part of that idea of delighting, it's misguided. And so there's not a little sarcasm in this promise hmm. here. Uh, from A little sarcasm from the Lord himself even. Oh, you, you, you're wondering where I am? Well, the one you seek, the one in whom you delight, he's coming. And so, again, what's fascinating is that despite the people's wrong intentions, God's still coming. He will come. And indeed, he did. So uh, what do you think, Alex, about this, uh, the messenger of the covenant and my messenger? Yeah, I think the messenger of the covenant is different from my messenger, that uh, the messenger of the covenant is a reference to Yahweh himself. And of course, the angel of Yahweh was what I believe to be the pre-incarnate form of Jesus, which is uh, that angel of Yahweh. It's a theophany of Yahweh himself. That's when he wanted to make himself visible. You can see the archives for uh, season three, episode one, for the angel of Yahweh episode we did. Now, this particular coming of Yahweh will be a moment of salvation for those who have a remnant of the Spirit, as discussed in chapter 2. But it will be a moment of judgment and condemnation for those who are acting evil, who are not going to heed and take to heart Yahweh's word. And here's a side note. Who was the messenger of the covenant of Moses again? Hmm. Yahweh? Well, yes, it comes from him. Moses? Well, yeah, it it was called the covenant of Moses. The priests? Well, yeah, the priests are called my messenger, Malachi 2.7, but also, according to Acts chapter 7.53, also Hebrews chapter 2 verse 2, angels were involved in the ordaining and delivering of the law, but was there a premier angel, a messenger distinct from all others? Yes, and that was the angel of Yahweh. Again, see the archives, I think episode one of this season that we're in right now, season three. Mm-hmm. So Nick, verses three and four. You have the arrival then of uh, the one who will come. This is uh, what we think is Yahweh. And there will be a refining. Uh, He will be like a fuller's soap. He will purify them like silver and gold. Okay. So how was the image of this purifier? And then following that, there will be a restoration of righteous offerings. So how is that restoration fulfilled? How is the image of the purifier fulfilled? 
Yeah, assuming the foregoing context of the coming of John the Baptist and then the coming of Christ, uh, in, in keeping with that, this could be a reference to the work of Christ. And in that case, again, interpretive options abound. Uh, the reference there to the sons of Levi in verse 3, he will purify the sons of Levi, uh, could literally be the priests who converted in the early days of the church. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 talks about a great many of the priests became obedient. Uh, some read it as a reference to the apostles and the prophets in the early church. Uh, others say, well, it's all the people of God who are purified by Christ's blood, and then they are made priests in the temple of the Spirit. Yeah, kind of like what you read about in First Peter chapter 2, uh, and in particular verse 9 with that royal priesthood uh, bit. So given the next verse's reference, uh, verse uh, 4 here, to the offerings, uh, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, for me, I think option three fits best, that it's all the people under the new covenant that are in view here who are purified by the, by the blood of Christ and then are made priests in the temple of the Spirit. So that's what I see here. What say you? Yeah, and it's good that we just covered First Peter in the podcast, so go back and listen to those First Peter archives. I think that will serve as a good reference point for many of the things mentioned in Malachi. Now again, I do think the original audience probably thought that the messenger was the priest, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, and that after they repented, God's favor would return and accept their sacrifices. You see in chapter 2, verse 13, God's not accepting their sacrifices. They are wailing and crying over that. But then you see here in chapter 3, verse 4, then he will accept their sacrifices. So, Yahweh's plan for restoring acceptable sacrifices includes the vision of all the nations. You got to go back to chapter 1 for this. Chapter 1, verse 11 says, For my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations. Now, since the work of John the Baptist and Jesus centered around Judah and Jerusalem, especially Christ's sacrifice on the cross, it makes sense for Malachi here to center these locations, Jerusalem and Judah, as the epicenter for restoring righteous sacrifices. But from there, Yahweh's presence and people would spread throughout the world. These offerings and sacrifices then, as you said, point to the Christians and the sacrifice of their own lives and service to Christ. It is the Christian who has been refined like gold. That's 1 Peter 1, 7. It is the Christian who offers up spiritual sacrifices. That's 1 Peter 2, 5. And it is the Christian who now serves as a royal priesthood. That's 1 Peter 2, 9. Now, Nick, verse 4. There is a reference that the area of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh as in the days of old, as in former years. When did Judah and Jerusalem become like the days of old? Again, keeping with the context and taking this as a prophecy concerning Christ's coming, there is a new and a heavenly Jerusalem that is led by the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, I've combined there Hebrews 12.22 and Revelation 5.5 for that description. So the church as royal priesthood, 
offers acceptable spiritual offerings to God. You mentioned 1 Peter 2, verse 5. We could also tack in there Hebrews 13, verse 15. As days of old, then, becomes a simile of description, comparing the sacrifices, the offerings of the new temple to the sacrifices when the temple, or perhaps even the tabernacle, was first completed. They are pleasing to Yahweh. So uh, what I see here, what say you? Right. In verse 3, the offerings of Levi, uh, those are plural, which I think finds fulfillment with Christian sacrifice of self and service, as previously mentioned. However, the sacrifice of Judah and Jerusalem in verse 4 is singular, which I think is pointing to the one true sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which serves as the underpinning for why sacrifices were ever pleasing to Yahweh in the days of old. It's because of their forward-looking capacity to Jesus and his atonement on the cross. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 10. That sacrifice, which was once for all time sufficient to forgive sins, it took place in Jerusalem just outside of the city in Judah. So those who followed Jesus and became the church then on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They were in Jerusalem and Judah, thus making the Christian and the church the restoration of God's faithful and pleasing people. So, verse 5, Nick, when did this following judgment take place then? Yeah, I will draw near to you for judgment here in verse 5. God uh, he's going to give the people what they want, which is justice, which is it's the same Hebrew term here for judgment in verse 5 of chapter 3, as is used for uh, 2 verse 17, where they're asking for the God of justice, same, same word. And that, I believe, is a linguistic link that may serve to pull the fulfillment of this prophecy back to the day and the time of Malachi, the various sins then were the cause of the resulting economic calamity and downturn that they were seeing. And there are uh, there's a laundry list here, uh, which we'll cover here in just a moment, uh, that uh, fill out the rest of verse 5. Having said that, some take verse 5 here to be a prophecy that is also linked to, uh, maybe not the time of Christ, but uh, certainly to Christ after his ascension, specifically the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, John Gill in his commentary notes that sorcery was used by many in the time of Christ and the apostles, even among the Sanhedrin. And it's fascinating that Yahweh says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. Uh, so uh, could be what is in view here is that yet future destruction of Jerusalem that would take place in uh, 70 AD. What did you see here, Alex? Well, while I agree that the destruction of Jerusalem was forewarned about by both John the Baptist and Jesus, that destruction only serves really as a microcosm of what will be the final judgment of the whole world, which is to take place at the return of Christ. The basis for this assumption will be explored more as we get into chapter 4 next week, which I think points towards the final end. But for now, I see this verse as indicating God's final judgment after the establishment of God's people, begun first in Jerusalem and Judah, uh, but it will spread. And after it has spread sufficiently through both space and time, we are 2,000 years into this thing, 
It is uh, during that time their offerings will be pleasing. That's verse 4. That's back to that happening among the nations in chapter 1, verse 11. It says, after that, right? Then I will draw near for judgment here in verse 5. So I think this is the final judgment. It's an eschatological um, uh, facing uh, verse. So that's my take. Nick, there are certain sins listed in that judgment. Not all sins, though, right? Why are there only certain types of sins listed in verse 5? Yeah, it's certainly not exhaustive. The the catalog of sins that are listed here, you got sorcerers, uh, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless. Uh, So uh, economic and, and social injustice is in view there. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. This catalog of sins is sufficient to demonstrate the social context of Malachi's day. Not only, quote-unquote, big sins like we tend to think about, but things like elder neglect and economic injustice. Those are things that God is mindful of. He sees and he knows. But whatever sins are not listed here, those who do not fear me, which is the conclusion of the list here. That would serve as a catch-all of all the ungodly activity since sin begins with no fear of God, no reverence of God. Uh, So that's what I see going on here. Alex, what did you find? I think these sins seem to be focused on the accumulation of power and position. As we'll see in verse 15, what they see around them is the doers of wickedness being built up testing God and getting away with it. Why practice sorcery? Well, power. Why commit adultery? Well, maybe money from a new dowry or position from a new social connection with the foreign wives. Go back again to chapter 2 for that. Why swear falsely? To escape earthly judgment, of course. In other words, you're committing perjury. Why oppress the laborer and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner? Again, to gain and maintain power, and position. I think that this not only describes Malachi's own day, this describes the uh, status, I think, of pretty much the world uh, from then until now. This still happens. This is still where we see the worst uh, and most vile atrocities committed are in these kinds of contexts. So naturally, one would wonder, When is God going to take care of that? When is he going to do something about that? And we'll talk about that when we get to verse 15. But until then, verse 6, we have the uh, statement that Yahweh does not change, and therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Now here's the big word for today, right? Uh, Immutable. Nick, talk to us. Is God immutable? Verse 6. Yeah, that's a... Five dollar theological word, right? Um, and and really, what it means is this: the doctrine of divine immutability states that God cannot change, nor can He be changed in His essence or perfections, as well as His character, will, purpose, aim. And the self revelation of Yahweh here in Malachi three six is but one text that is marshaled in support of this doctrine. You could also see. 
Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, which draws the comparison between the creation, heaven and earth, which will perish and will pass away, and the Creator, who is God, who will remain and is the same. One noteworthy aspect of that particular passage is that they're quoted in Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12, and they're applied to Christ, that he remains and that he is the same. And indeed, Hebrews' is bookended by statements of Christ's immutability. Not only there in Hebrews 1, but then you go to Hebrews 13, verse 8, and it reads, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so, immutability is linked with eternity. Because here, with the foreverness of Christ, and also Hebrews 1, verse 12, which is quoting Psalm 102, verse 27, the timelessness of God's unchangeableness is accentuated by the phrase, your years have no end. Uh, God's eternality and his immutability, they go hand in hand with one another. And so the contrast between creator and creation, even we creatures, that contrast stands. The creation is perishable. It is changeable. It is not the same. Meanwhile, the creator is imperishable. He's unchangeable, and he's always the same. The doctrine of divine immutability informs the assurance of God's people. Since God does not change, as Psalm 102, verse 28 tells us, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So God's immutability, his unchanging character, nature, purpose, uh, essence, it brings security for God's people. If God were subject to sudden, unpredictable change, that is, if he were mutable, there could be no security for his people. Indeed, coming back to 3 and verse 6 of Malachi, since God does not change, he tells Israel, you're not destroyed, you're not consumed. If he were such a God as they claim him to be, unfair, unfaithful, he would have ended them long ago. But he has not, because he changes not. Two other factors help focus God's immutability here. The children or sons of Jacob. That uh, phrase is found primarily in Genesis, and it's connected to Israel's origin under God's covenant with the patriarchs. And then also the statutes that are talked about here in verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned away from my statutes. That's a covenantal term. Specific to this context, then, the immutability of God is related to Yahweh's covenantal faithfulness. Despite Israel's faithlessness to the covenant, Yahweh remains unchangeably faithful to his covenant. So to the question, is God immutable, I answer in the affirmative. And what say you, Alex? I agree, especially with that last part, that Yahweh does not change is a pointed reference to his covenant loyalty, which has been an important subject now in all three chapters of Malachi. Man may break covenant with Yahweh. In fact, man does often. That's why Israel is rebuked. But Yahweh always keeps his part of the covenant. He will not change. His faithfulness will endure. Now, here's a disclaimer. 
I, much to the chagrin of staunch Calvinists, affirm that Yahweh has and can change his mind. Not only do scriptural examples of this abound, but it never violates his character and covenant to do so. This verse and its echo in Hebrews 13.8 you mentioned concerning Christ will be quoted up and down to prove Calvinist tenets, to which I take serious issue. God's character, his values, those do not change because that's who he is. That's why he doesn't break covenant. That's why he's patient. And that's why he'll even change his mind sometimes in order to extend mercy when it was not his intention to originally do so. In fact, you can see Moses and Israel on Mount Sinai for that one. So just a disclaimer there. <laughs> well, and I guess another disclaimer to the disclaimer, you don't have to be a Calvinist to believe in divine immutability either. So It, it certainly seems like they have a, um, a tooling of immutability, which they use for their doctrine. Not that, like you said, immutability as a whole is uh, unsound or cannot be held to in a non-Calvinistic uh, position. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, the doctrine goes back long before Calvin ever walked the planet. <laughs> right. Uh, you got you got Tertullian, you got Augustine, you got Theodoret. Uh, these guys were all talking about divine immutability, even in terms that I've used uh, here to answer the question, long before uh, Calvin ever. So, uh, you know, unless we're uh, anachronistically reading back Calvinism into them, right? That, that's mm -hmm. what I mean. You don't have to be a Calvinist in order to believe in divine immutability, so... Right. But Calvinists do take immutability and use it for their own theological purposes, right? Well, I'm sure uh, Augustine and Tertullian and Theodoret did the same thing. <laughs> so, Sure, but they did not come to the same conclusions, though, right? So that's, that's what I'm saying is uh, Tertullian wasn't a Calvinist. Even Augustine wasn't a Calvinist. You don't have Calvinists until Calvin, and so Calvin did read his own conclusions back into the Church Fathers. So that's my disclaimer. God can and does change his mind, and that doesn't violate his immutability. The immutability refers to, from the way I see it, his character and his uh, personhood. So there you go. A little off-script swordplay for you folks. And God. <laughs> yes. Okay. Verses 7 through 9. We have Yahweh saying, you've, you've, robbed you've robbed me, you've deceived me. And they're like, well, how did we do that? And he said, you're not bringing in the tithes and the offerings. Now, why does Yahweh so badly want these tithes and offerings in verses 7 through 9, Nick? Well, uh, one, he commanded it. Uh, Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 and following. Uh, is one place where he does that. Uh, the tithe was holy unto Yahweh. Uh, Leviticus 27, verses 30 to 33 talks about that. Also, the, the tithe served as support for uh, the tribe of Levi and the priests. Numbers 18, verses 21 and following discusses that. Uh, it also served as support for widows and orphans and strangers. Back to Deuteronomy 14, this time verses 27 through 29 for more on that. Also, giving back to God what he first gave them, that was no small theological point. 
uh, Deuteronomy 8 and verse 18, Yahweh is he who gives you power to get wealth. And it was at his blessing that the fields produced. And so this was, it was, uh, it was worship. It was an expression of God's worthiness based on uh, his, his blessings on the people, uh, which uh, is part of the reason why he wanted the tithes and the offerings, as I see it. What did you see, Alex? Yeah, just as a reminder, too, never once is it said that Yahweh eats the sacrifices or gets any kind of nourishment from the offerings. Right. He does not. However, the offerings serve as a show of covenant faithfulness, which communicated the desire to have Yahweh's presence be among them and for that relationship to flourish. And out of a flourishing relationship with their God, then would flow a flourishing community. The sacrifices at the temple were used as a fellowship meal. It fed the priests, it fed their families, it fed the community during festivals, it fed the poor and needy. Everyone needs food for life, and Yahweh intentionally incorporated this need into the worship system so that life would be understood as originating from Him. He wants to give us life. And it is from the very beginning that Yahweh creates life, sustains life, and says it is good. That's why he wants them to bring the offerings. It is central to the community's life force. That's what I saw. And we have a promise here that if they did bring the tithes in, test the Lord in that way. See if he won't open up the windows of heaven. So Nick, verse 10, what are the windows of heaven? Yeah, it's an interesting phrase in in the Septuagint. It says waterfalls of heaven, very... uh, uh, interesting uh, phraseology there. Uh, the phrase is used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, specifically Genesis 7, verse 11, and also 8, verse 2, when God opened and then closed the windows of heaven to begin and end the flood, respectively. The windows of heaven opened and emptied their contents, which was rainwater, upon the earth. And so as the waters poured out of the heavens in judgment in Noah's day, God promises that he is able to overwhelm the people in Malachi's day with abundant and sufficient blessings. God will open the windows of heaven and empty its contents, which would be blessings, especially agricultural prosperity, until there is more than enough for the people. Uh, So that's what I found about windows of heaven. Alex, uh, what say you? Yeah, as I discussed in detail in chapter 2, the land of Israel was dependent upon the rains for agricultural success. Uh, The land was too hilly, it was too rocky to irrigate, and without the rains, it quickly turned into desert. God used the rains then as a covenant barometer for Israelite faithfulness. Now, the fact that they were called windows probably points back to their ancient cosmology and understanding that there was a hard crystal vaulted ceiling which separated the heavenly waters above the earth from the waters below the earth. You can see this in Job chapter 22 verse 14, chapter 37 verse 18. Uh, That vaulted ceiling firmament, it makes the dry space that we inhabit possible. So that's where they get the idea of Windows, windows of heaven. So verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Alex, uh, why is there food in the storehouse of the temple? 
because the food in turn feeds the needy. You can see Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 through 29, and chapter 26, verse 12. This was initially done in each town and distributed on a local basis, but once the establishment of the temple had been permanently situated, the same principle applied at the temple. Bring in the tithes from Jerusalem to the temple storehouses, out of which the poor and needy would be provided for in that area. So, very important to bring in that food. It wasn't just about obedience, but it was about the well-being of their entire community and how they have to support each other and not just think about themselves. So, Nick, verse 11, there is a, almost sounds like a featured creature. Hmm. Who is the devourer? Yeah, I will rebuke the devourer for you. Uh, Some of the creatures mentioned under the curse over in Deuteronomy chapter 28 are the locust in verse 38, the worm in verse 39, and the cricket in verse 42, to name just a, a few. Any of these pests would fit the bill. The word is also used sometimes of fire, like in Hosea 8 and verse 14, also even for enemies, like in Jeremiah 30 and verse 16. Uh, Back in uh, verse 9 of chapter 3 here in Malachi, you are cursed with a curse. That's their present situation. So the removal of the curse, the devourer, would be a return to blessing, but that is based ultimately upon their return to Yahweh as he had invited them in verse 7. Return to me, I'll return to you. Uh, So that's what I see about the, the devourer. What say you, Alex? Yeah, I agree, and this shows you just how far their unfaithfulness had escalated. First, the rains would slow down, but if they didn't pay attention to Yahweh's warning when their crops began to lessen, a more direct calling would come from the plague of locusts. In the book of Joel, these locusts foreshadowed even the armies which would come and destroy them eventually if they remained unrepentant. And so it seems that Jerusalem and Judah were already at the uh, locust stage when Malachi calls them out and warns them to take these words to heart. Now, the promise in verse 12 says that the nations, when Yahweh blesses them, they will look upon the land of Judah and Jerusalem, and they will call it a delightful land. So, Nick, did the nations ever see Judah and Jerusalem as especially blessed in verse 12? As previously mentioned, the curse is upon them, as is stated in verse 9. Now we read of a blessing attached to their return to God. And one of the first blessings for obedience is, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. That's what he says in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 1. So assuming a return to God, yes, the nations would see that. Uh, At the same time, Some interpret this as something fulfilled in Christ and coupled with other Old Testament passages, especially like Isaiah's New Heavens, New Earth, for example, or even the last several chapters of the book of Isaiah. Only with Christ and his work does the blessing of the nations truly occur. Uh, So uh, what do you think, Alex? Did the nations ever see Judah and Jerusalem as blessed? You know, it seems that a return to God that Malachi is calling for here doesn't really happen, at least not in great numbers. Uh, The historical record in the Bible and outside of the Bible, to my knowledge, never has the nations looking with envy upon Jerusalem and Judah. And so it seems that this promise was conditional. 
If they bring in the tithe, then God will rebuke the devourer. The continued blessing of the land then with water from heaven would turn it into paradise. It would become legendary real estate in the eyes of the nations. Uh, This did not happen, which means they didn't really repent. Again, call it irony or coincidence, but when the messenger, John the Baptist, shows up to clear the way before Yahweh, his message is quite similar to Malachi's. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So, Nick, verses 14 and 15, it seems that um, these people have lost their faith in Yahweh. Why did you think? Why do you think that happened? Why did they lose their faith in, in Yahweh? Well, back in verse seven, uh, it says, "From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them." They they had turned away from God's word since the days of their fathers. Departure from the word of God is typically the first step toward lapse of faith and even loss of faith. What is especially stunning is that they are essentially indicting themselves with their statements concerning their worship. It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keep of our keeping his charge? They claim that their worship of God is useless. Their own worship of God is without result. It's worthless. So why are they doing it? All, all the sackcloth, all the ashes, that walking as in mourning there at the end of verse 14... It was of no benefit. But here's the thing. The problem was not with God. He was keeping covenant. I, Yahweh, changed not. The curse was upon them. The problem was with the people. They were disobedient. And their attitude betrays a subtle form of uh, perhaps legalism. It may even be the the nexus of full-blown Phariseeism, which would come later on down the line uh, historically. Uh, But yeah, that's that's what I see here about why did they lose faith in Yahweh. What do you think, Alex? You know, it is here that I do feel some sympathy towards the people. This verse echoes what we see in Psalm 10, which describes how discouraging it is when we see people who commit the most vile acts of evil continue to rise to power and continue to escape from justice over and over again. The problem or main difficulty is when we demand that our own expectation of timing and judgment take place. That's not our that's not our position to demand that, to put our timetable on Yahweh. The psalmist, as well as Malachi in chapter 4, verse 1, they agree. Yahweh will eventually settle the score with all who practice evil. However, in this long period of time in between now and then, It is our job to endure with faithfulness in God, trusting that our commitment to the covenant will impact our community for good and be rewarded on the day of judgment and justice will finally be executed on the day of Yahweh's wrath. That promise still stands today. Peter has a thing or two to say about that in 2 Peter chapter 3. So we have here in verse 16, A reference to the Book of Remembrance. Nick, what is the Book of Remembrance, and does Yahweh have other kinds of books? Yeah, it's a fascinating phrase. You know, ancient Near Eastern kings kept records. Darius stored documents in the House of Archives. You read about that in Ezra 6 and verse 1. Xerxes kept a Book of Memorable Deeds, the Chronicles, as they're called in Esther 6 and verse 1. 
Malachi has already presented Yahweh and established the fact that he is a great king back in 1 and verse 14, and so he is. But unlike these human kings, King Yahweh has a book in which is written every last day he has decreed for us. Psalm 139 and verse 16 talks about that. Every fitful tossing, every shed tear is in God's book. Psalm 56 and verse 8. So therefore, a book of remembrance for Yahweh is not to help him remember as though he's a forgetful king. When God remembers his people, like he does with Noah in Genesis 8 and verse 1, or like he does with the people of Israel in Exodus 2 and verse 24, which is an especially noteworthy passage because there's a linguistic connection with heard in Exodus 2 there, and also here how Yahweh heard this God-fearing remnant in Malachi's day, uh, as is said there in verse 16, Yahweh paid attention and heard them. So when God remembers his people, it's for the benefit of his people, and it's for divine action. Indeed, the book that is written, this phrase can also be translated, it is for those who feared Yahweh. It's for their benefit. It's for their assurance that he would spare them as a man spares his son. The end of verse 17 says. The Bible does record that there are uh, other heavenly records. Uh, Most prominent is the book of life. You can read about that in a number of places in your Bible, Exodus 32, verse 32, Psalm 69, 28, Philippians 4, verse 3, and then a bunch in Revelation, Revelation 3, verse 5, 13, verse 8, 17, verse 8, 20, verse 12, also verse 15, and then 21 and verse 27. Uh, So that's what I found about uh, these heavenly records. Alex, what say you? Well, let's take a look at Yahweh's library, shall we? Heavenly books are a common idea in the ancient Near East. In the Bible, there is reference to a uh, record or a book of all who are alive, and if they have descendants or not. You get that in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Uh, There's also a register for who belongs to each people group. At least one exists for Israel, Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 9. And I kind of think of it as a heavenly census. So I guess there's there's really no escaping the bureaucracy. <laughs> it's everywhere. There is also a book of divine decrees. Now that's usually showing up as a scroll which contains the decided judgment that will be carried out against someone or a nation. You get that in Ezekiel 2 verses 9 through 10 and Zechariah 5 verses 1 through 4. This likely fits the scroll also seen in Revelation Uh, chapters 5 and 6. Now here in Malachi 3.16, we have a book which records all of those who fear Yahweh. This may be a reference to the recording of all their good deeds, which manifested out of their faithfulness to Yahweh during their lifetime. Uh, You have a cross-reference there to Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 14. And a book of every evil deed is also kept, and that's in Jeremiah 17 verse 1 and verse 13. Yeah, this is why David pleads for his transgressions to be blotted out. That's Psalm 51, verse 3. He wants Yahweh to take the ink and pour it over the record of his transgressions, to blot it out, to wipe it away. All of these books are used as Exhibit A in the heavenly courtroom above, whenever they are deciding the fate of those who are under judgment. You get that in Daniel chapter 10, verses 9 through 12. But of course, 
The most prominent and important book is that of the Lamb's Book of Life and Revelation, which faithful Christians enjoy having their names upon its ledger for enduring through trial and temptation. So there are many books, many types of books, different occasions for these books. This is Yahweh's library. How's that for reading Rainbow, huh? Hmm. All right, verse Take seven. a look. That's it's in right. a book. <laughs> reading Rainbow. <laughs> verse 17. How did Yahweh prepare his possession? It says, uh, they will be mine on that day. I'll prepare my own possession. Didn't he already have his own possession? Nick, talk to us about that. Yeah, tre- treasured possession recalls Exodus 19, verse 5. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession, that uh, exact phraseology used there. So God, he set his love on Israel in a manner that was unlike any other nation. Despite Yahweh owning everything in the universe, they were chosen and treasured. However, as 19 and verse 5 of Exodus stipulates, such a lofty privilege carried with it obligations If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and then he goes on to say, you'll be my treasured possession. And so uh, this seems to be what's in back of Paul's statement over in Romans uh, Romans 9 and verse 6, that not all Israel is Israel, that there is this remnant, those who feared Yahweh, even among the larger nation uh, of Israel. So Yahweh will claim, uh, that's the phrase there, I make up my treasured possession. He's going to claim his treasured possession in that day, which is uh, uh, an eschatological phrase. Uh, That is, he will claim them for salvation through judgment. Judgment upon the wicked who did not serve him, but salvation... That is, he will spare them, as he says, the end of verse 17, salvation for the righteous remnant. Perhaps like a a shepherd claiming lost sheep. That's kind of what he's going to do here or what's pictured. So uh, that's what I see. Alex, what do you think? So anytime the Bible uses this language about inheritance and possession, the root idea goes back to the origin of the nations. Because of Babel, nations came into existence. From those nations, Yahweh had no possession. He takes Abraham, and he turns him into a nation, and that becomes Yahweh's possession. You get this idea from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 through 20, and chapter 32, verses 7 through 9, especially in the ESV, or the Dead Sea Scrolls, or the Septuagint. Now remember, Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. Somehow, it is in all the nations that Yahweh will once again receive pleasing sacrifices and his name be great among all the nations. This is clearly, in our New Testament theology, the goal of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. uh, Authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all the nations. Now it is the faithful in Christ Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, who are considered Yahweh's treasured possession. As Peter proclaims in 1 Peter 2, verses 9-10, through Once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. Just as Yahweh prepared Israel to be his son and possession through the Exodus, so now there has been a new Exodus through the new Moses. 
That's Jesus Christ and our baptism. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. So, there will come a time, Nick, when someone will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, who is that? When will that happen? Verse 18. Well, the wind will be in that day, and I mean, you know, what, what exactly, when exactly will that be? It's it's a good question. I want to address the who, uh, because it says, I will make up, I will spare them. And based on those statements there in verse 17 that lead into verse 18, it seems Yahweh will make the distinction uh, between the righteous remnant and the wicked. And then the righteous remnant, they will see Yahweh at work. Uh, That's why he says, once more, you shall see the distinction. So Yahweh does it, the righteous remnant sees it, when? In that day. So uh, that's what I see here. What do you think? I think this points to the great separation which Jesus spoke about in his kingdom parables of Matthew 13. The tares will be separated from the wheat. The good fish will be separated from the bad fish. This is likely an eschatological separation, right? This is about the end of all things, the resurrection, the day, the judgment, the final judgment, which I think flows nicely from the idea that there are all these books used in the heavenly courtroom that we just mentioned. And I think that will continue to flow nicely into chapter 4, verse 1, which talks about the day of his coming being like a furnace and the uh, evildoers being uh, burned up like the chaff. The distinction then between the righteous and the wicked will be done by Jesus. This is important because he will not be deceived by those who used good only as a cover for practicing evil. Uh, That may deceive people here on earth in this time right now, but in the end, uh, Jesus will know who practices righteousness, who practices unrighteousness, who's the wolf in sheep's clothing, who's the one who says and that I did good and maybe really did good, but it was just a facade to cover up all of their evil. And you get that from Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's covenant language. Uh, We are not in covenant. And that brings us now to our featured creature. Featured creature. And today's featured creature is Raphael. Nick, who is Raphael? Oh, you mean the, the Renaissance painter? No. Uh, uh, the Ninja Turtle. No. Hmm. You know what's interesting about uh, Raphael um, <clears throat> is the name does not appear in the Bible. And so for information about Raphael, we must look outside of the Bible to apocryphal and uh, pseudepigraphal works. And much speculative angelology abounds concerning Raphael. Raphael is... The uh, is an angel. Uh, he is one of the characters in the apocryphal work Tobit, and we've actually uh, talked about that book in a previous episode. Go back into the archives and uh, listen to that episode about the book of Tobit. And he is the angel dispatched from God's presence to aid uh, Tobias in his quest to retrieve money from a certain Gabael. Raphael disguises himself as a human 
and then he helps Tobias with uh, developing remedies from a fish that clamped down on Tobias's foot at one point. Uh, indeed, the, the various parts of that fish are ultimately used to drive out the demon Asmodeus, uh, drive him away uh, from the future Mrs. Tobias, Sarah, and it also provides healing to Tobias's father, Tobit. He was blind. And after the work is done, Raphael reveals himself to be an angel, and then back up to heaven he goes. He ascends back into heaven. Now the extra-biblical work, uh, First Enoch, goes further with the Raphael mythos, making him second in a hierarchy of angels. In the book of Tobit, he's one of seven angels who stand ready to enter before the glory of God. In First Enoch, he's numbered as second. He, in First Enoch, he binds Azazel. He casts him into a pit, uh, as well as other interesting things. Uh, in the Babylonian Talmud, since again we're going outside the Bible here, might as well bring in some of the Jewish mythos as well, the, this collection of rabbinic tradition that's compiled in Babylon. Raphael is actually one of the three angels who met with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. So uh, there you go. That's what I found, a bit about what I found about Raphael. Alex, what say you? Well, Raphael, like all angels, including Michael and Gabriel, ends with the suffix El, which always points back to Yahweh God as the origin for their particular attribute. Uh, Michael, who is like God, right? Raphael means God heals. So it is no surprise that Yahweh sends Raphael to heal people in the book of Tobit. Now, Tobit is in the Bible. Just open your Catholic Bible, or your Orthodox Bible, or your Ethiopian Bible, or your Septuagint Bible, which was the Bible of the church for the first 300 years. There in Tobit, you will find Raphael. Tobit was so well known and enjoyed by the earliest Christians that the earliest known artwork of the church found in the catacombs of Rome have no less than three identified frescoes of Tobit. Early Christian sermons were preached on Tobit, which utilized the fish which Raphael leads Tobias to catch and then uses to heal blindness and cast away demons. They used that fish and allegorized that fish as representing Christ, capitalizing on the ichthus acronym and the power of Christ to heal the blind and cast away demons. Ichthus, by the way, being the Greek word for fish, the acronym meaning Iesu Christus Theos Huiasoter, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Raphael also reveals himself in the book of Tobit to be one of seven special angels who enter before the glory of God. Hmm, where have I heard about seven spirits before the throne of God before? Where did that go? Oh yeah, Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. Now, turn in your Ethiopian Bibles to the book of Enoch, or First Enoch for you scholars out there, and you'll see that Raphael enjoys the position of the top four archangels, uh, joined by Michael, Gabriel, and Uriel. Now, after binding the uh, top fallen watcher, Azazel, or at least co-top with, uh, what's the other guy, Shimiaza, Raphael acts according to his name once more by healing the earth from the damage caused by the watchers. So no master splinter, don't offer him pizza, he prefers fish. And don't give him a paintbrush either, his, he only practices the art of healing. And definitely don't 
Come down to Earth, create giant human-angelic hybrids, and spread the practice of forbidden knowledge, or he will bind you up and put you into the lowest pit of darkness to await your doom. This is Raphael, and he doesn't need a twin sigh to take you down. <laughs> That's a featured creature. That's our featured creature. <laughs> All right, Nick. Well, any uh, message for our audience today? Yeah, feel free if you have a question to send it in to the Swordplay text line. Erico 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-247-9673. Go into the Apple Podcast Store and uh, leave a review. That'll help us uh, boost the podcast in that respective uh, location. And if you leave a review, a written review, we will read it on air. Uh, so, bonus. Also, uh, if folks have a question, Alex, they can also send it to an email address, which is swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Send all of your uh, questions and comments to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time for the last episode on Malachi, Malachi chapter 4. And until then, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on scripture. Uh-huh.